Don't you love that hymn, His Robes for Mine? That is just, oh man, that is just awesome. I don't, I don't know what else to say, but it is just so beautiful. The, the entire gospel is articulated in that song, the entire gospel. You could tell somebody, here's the gospel, and you could use that song as justification for it. So praise God. Open your Bibles, as I said, to 1 John chapter 4. Where today we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. Last week we did, uh, first, uh, we did the love of God, and I, I, I preface it that it was part one. Well, guess what? Here comes the love of God, part two. And last week, as we looked at 1 John 4, 7, and we explored, we did an overview of the topic of the love of God. By the way, it's, a, it's one of those topics that how do you talk about as a human being the love of God? Seriously, I mean, we could see these things revealed in Scripture, but it is, it is such a lofty subject that I don't think the human mind can capture the love of God in its entirety, which is why I always say we kind of scratch, we scratch the surface of that revelation. Uh, but last week we explored 1 John 4, 7, the topic of the love of God. We saw three principles I shared with you. Principle one was that the love of God, uh, God's love is, uh, begins with God, it originates with God, God's love is defined by God, and God's love is given to the believer. And we reviewed that when John speaks of the love of God, he uses the agape love of God. And we define the agape love of God, right? We said the agape love of God is that preferential love. God preferred to love, which to me is just so amazing. Not only did God prefer to love, but God preferred to love sinners. I love that verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, when Paul says this is a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came to save sinners among which I am the foremost. So this agape love of God centers in on God's preference, God choosing. It also involves a sacrificial love, a very sacrificial love that God chose not only to prefer, but God sacrificed on behalf of those whom his love was directed at. For the believer, the agape love of God is not motivated uh, by something that the believer wants, right? It's not motivated that way. It's not motivated by what the believer seeks to gain, nor is it motivated by something the believer expects to be reciprocated. You think about that. Human love expects love to be reciprocated. And as a matter of fact, we usually fall flat when we love someone or we love something, and then all of a sudden that love goes unreciprocated, causes us to wane in our affections, right? But God's love is manifested as a preference. He chose to love. And so as we explore the love of God, to me it's like climbing, it's like trying to climb like the highest peak, like a Mount Everest. And, and I think what happens is despite the fact that you're ascending to heights perhaps where you've never ascended before, you realize the further you go up that that summit is yet higher and higher and higher. 
And this is what I love about it because the last two weeks diving into the love of God for me has been something that has been very, very challenging, especially as I look at that preferential love of God. And so today we're going to continue on in verses 8 through 11. And we're going to continue to go forward and look at that love of God. I referenced a hymn to you last week called The Love of God by Frederick Lehman. It was published in 1917. And the third stanza of this hymn says this regarding the love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And everyone a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And I think that's totally appropriate. What the, what the writer of the hymn is saying, that my goodness, if everybody were to write about it, if the entire sky, uh, uh, sky was a scroll, we could never, we would exhaust the oceans. It, it, we, we could never articulate this glory. Simply put, to explore and come to the knowledge of all there is regarding God's love, it's not achievable. It's too vast. It's too high. It's too broad. And it is way, way, way too deep for our finite minds to grasp. Likewise, though, I think we do a great disservice when in our religious pretentiousness, You are in our pride. We think we know all there is to know about God's love. Listen, we could never fathom come to the realization, the full comprehension of the mind of God. There are times when I read the Scripture and I can't take into account and I just have to pause and say, God, you're way, way too big for for this simpleton that I am. So we're going to tread slowly and we're going to tread deliberately regarding this subject and attempt to pick out one or two or three few gems that we find along in our study. It's my hope that we will contemplate and meditate upon a few of these gems and in so doing, find a deep, deep abiding love of God. So today we're going to answer Four questions that our text poses to us. Question number one. In what way is God love? In what way is God love? Question number two. In what way is the love of God manifested in believers in Christ? Question number three. How did God love believers? And question four, how should believers love one another? This is our objective today. This is what we're setting out to do. And it's my earnest hope that in answering these questions from the Scripture, we will be drawn deeper into the love of God. So let's look at the first question. In what way is God love? Look at 1 John 4, verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I want to take a step back. Let me me grab the context from verse 7. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right here in verse 8, he begins with the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And I shared with you last week, again, those three principles, that this love, this agape love of God originates with God, is defined by God, God defines love, and love does not define God, right? And I shared with you last week that the love of God doesn't supersede any of the other attributes, nor does it take away from any of the other attributes. The love of God is consistent with all of the attributes of God. So the love of God is consistent with God's holiness. The love of God is consistent with God's righteousness, The love of God is consistent with sanctification. The love of God is consistent with his mercy. So God's love is defined by God, but yet the love of God does not define God in his entirety, right? And so we look at this, and I think of immediately Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love, that word again in Romans 5, 8, agape love, it's agape. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love toward us, the redeemed, in the fact that Christ died for us. There's the preferential, there is the sacrificial agape love of God. It was demonstrated. And Paul's point to the Romans, it was demonstrated on the cross. In Titus 3, 4, uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul puts it this way. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, working with his many other attributes of mercy and grace. Paul tells us that this agape love of God, which originated with God, showcased that love toward undeserving, unloving sinners. And in showcasing that, we see God's preferential love. It's preferent. He preferred to do so. He preferred to do so. So we see that preferential love of God. God chose to showcase that love and in so doing revealed his heart of love to the world. It is this love that God demonstrates whereby God withholds his justice on sinful people He withholds his punishment when he has a rightful authority to bring it. He offers mercy and grace where it is undeserved. 
And God has chosen in his providence and in his sovereignty to pour out his love to a sinful world that does not deserve it. So much is so often said about, if there's a God, how can he allow all these things to happen? But nobody stops to contemplate the fact that every time you sin and the amount of grievous sins committed, and people aren't immediately judged by God right there. I mean, look at our world today. Seriously, look at our world today. We still see the mercy of God and the grace of God being withheld. Being withheld, His justice being withheld against a world that woefully and boastfully scorns Him. That in and of itself is the love of God. How, how is God love? Well, God is love in His common grace. His common grace, His benevolence to all. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. Look what it says. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all in His mercies are all over his works. In Matthew 5, verses 44 to 45, our Lord Jesus says this, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, there's an interesting thing there in, in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says to love your enemies. That wasn't taught in Israel at the time. Matter of fact, the evidence of that is look at how Israel treated Samaritans. They didn't love them. They hated them. As a matter of fact, the parable of the good Samaritan points that out that the Samaritan had the righteousness of God, that the Samaritan had the compassion of God, yet all those in the parable that were good priests and, and others in the synagogue walked right past that poor wounded man along the side of the road. Let us never forget that God's mercy is demonstrated day in and day out in the world. He causes His Son to go on the just and the unjust. And I'll tell you something else. Once you become a believer in Christ, I don't know if it's your experience, but when you become a believer in Christ, all your problems don't go away, do they? We too experience the consequences of life, the circumstances of life. But how many people are out there today that are unsafe, unbelieving, perhaps even atheistic, who have clean water to drink, a warm house to sleep in, a good bed, overabundance of material things? That's all God's goodness and God's mercy. He shows His mercy through the common grace. God extends His love and mercy and grace to all. God summons all to come to Christ in repentance and faith through the Gospel. God's love is 
is even demonstrated and repeated in his warnings for people to repent and to turn from sins. We know John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved the what? The world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I always say you cannot include John 3.16 without bringing up John 3.17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. For he who does not believe, for he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. There it is. There's the natural depravity. You're condemned because of your unbelief. But what? God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And he, even though God knows that most will not come to repentance and faith, God in His preferential love chose to save a vast multitude of undeserving people and shower them with His love and grace. Lastly, God has a special love, really special and an abundant love and an overwhelming love. You could say it is a great love for those that are, uh, are his own, the save, the believer in Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, because I really want you to see this. I think we use this doctrinally, but we may miss some of the key words in here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And it reads as follows. But God, and I always love seeing that. I always love seeing that. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love which He loved us. Notice that. I want you to stop right there. But God, because of what? His great love. God loved the world, but God has a great love for the believer. He says his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us, toward us, the believer, in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has a great love for you. A great love to such an extent that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Him. Why? Because by grace we have been saved through faith so that what? in order in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you are saved in Christ Jesus, you have not even reached the pinnacle of that surpassing grace and kindness that the Lord has demonstrated. 
In what way is God love? By having mercy on all the world, by calling men and women to the gospel, by demonstrating his love and his mercy toward a sinful world, and still holding out grace until this day. Now look, a day is going to come when there will be no more grace. A day is going to come when there will be justice. And it will be justice on God's standard. But until now, God is calling men and women to come in repentance of faith, forbearing what is rightfully due, and calling them and say, come, repent, turn from your sins. Let's look at the second question. In what way is the love of God manifested in believers? Verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. What does John mean when he states, the love of God has been manifested in us? The Greek word for the word manifested means to be demonstrated, to be made visible. Right? It stands out. It's called out. And in this verse, the verb is used in the sense that God's love is made known. It is demonstrative. It becomes visible. It becomes clear. And the point that John is making in this is that the love of God in believers is not something that's secretive. It's not something that is hidden. Rather, it reveals itself. How does it reveal itself? Primarily in two different ways. First, John states that this love of God was made visible. It was demonstrated on the cross through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Remember John in John chapter 1 of his gospel, verse 14, he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that in the first way, the love of God was revealed on the cross. It was demonstrated to the world. Second, the love of God, and here's an important one, the love of God is revealed in the believer's forgiveness of sin and submission to Christ. Submission to Christ. We've seen this all over 1 John. 1 John 1.9 For if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 2.5 But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has been truly perfected. And by this, John adds, we know that we are in him. John MacArthur has a great statement. He says this, the Apostle John's admonition is a solemn reminder that a mere pretension of faith in Christ is worthless. Think about that for a moment. Let me say that again. The Apostle John's ad admonition is a solemn reminder that a mere pretension of faith in Christ is worthless. He goes on to add, 
genuine, genuine faith will inevitably be shown by love. After all, real faith works through love. And he quotes Galatians 5, 6. And listen what Paul says here. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Faith working through love. In what way is the love of God manifested? Well, it's manifested externally to the world. It's manifested by Christ dying on the cross for sinners. It's manifested in the world in forgiveness of sins. But the love of God is manifested in the believer in that the believer now can love as God loves. I think I made mention to this last week. You can love as God loves when you prefer to love and overlook sin. You could love as God loves when you choose to love as God and overlook offenses that someone may have transgressed against you. You can love as God by forgiving your brothers and sisters. You can love as God when you reach out to someone with zero expectation, nothing of a return. But you do so because God's love has been poured out in your heart. I mean, the church, right? They used to sing, oh, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Right? That used to be a big popular song when I was a kid. But the truth of the matter is, how are Christians supposed to be known? You know, during the Middle Ages, when the Black Plague went across Europe, and thousands upon thousands were dying, And everybody, much like what happened with COVID, tried to avoid each other. But you know who were the ones who ministered to the sick and to the dying? It was believers in Christ. At the risk of their own life, and many of them for doing so, perished. They died. But the love of God compelled them. They saw the need. They saw people dying hopeless. They saw people dying alone. And it was the believers in Christ who went and who ministered to the sick. And many, many, many of them died. Their names are unknown to history of people who tended to these sick and dying people. Why? Because the love of God was shed abroad in their heart. Listen, church, we have to, as as Christians, we have to eliminate the world's definition of love. We don't do to be seen. We should not be doing, expecting somebody to do likewise for us. When we do a good deed, we do a good deed in the name of Jesus Christ, not expecting reciprocation, not expecting anything. Perhaps we do good deeds to people that are mean to us. Maybe they're evil to us, but we can love them. The Word of God says that we can love them because God has poured out the love of God. He has poured out the love of Christ in our hearts. Which is why, by the way, churches should be the safest place in the world. They should be the safest place for the broken. 
They should be the safest place for those that are in need. And they should be a place of sacrifice and service, incessant sacrifice and service, not to gain favor with anybody, but simply because we are to love one another. We are to love one another as Christ and God loves us. God demonstrated that love in that he sent his son. We demonstrate that love in the fact that we are benefactors of that love. And therefore, like God, we prefer, we choose to love. True faith in Christ reveals the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts. That's Romans 5.5. 5. It's been shed abroad. The love of God has been shed abroad. And all throughout the epistle that, of John, all he speaks about is what true faith looks like. And one of the most consistent themes in this epistle, Jason said it as he did the scripture reading, is we're reminded of the love of God, the love of God, the love of God that we should have it. To date, as where we are, we see it eight times. We, you don't have to write these down, but in 1 John 1.3, 1 John 1.5, 1 John 1.10, 1 John 3.1, 1 John 3.14, 1 John 3.16 through 18, 1 John 3.23-24, we are reminded of this love of God. You think John's trying to make a point? I think, I, I think he is. I mean, I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. I get it. So to recap, this agape love of God is manifested in two ways on the cross through Jesus' sacrifice, and secondly, in the believer's life of faith, demonstrated through love. Demonstrated through love. I've been in some churches, man, you'd never know that, that they were believers. I've seen things said, I've seen, I've heard things done, and everybody with their righteous point. You know, I'm not going to do that because blah, 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 blah. And they rally and they rail and in anger and everything, they seek to justify them. And you go, where is the love of God? Where is the love of God here? Let's look at the third question. How did God love believers? Look at verse 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I, I used that illustration at the beginning, right? When you explore the love of God, it's like climbing the highest peaks. And, and even though you may be going to points you've, you've never been before, you may be at 18,000 feet now, you may be at 20,000 feet now, the highest point you ever have been, what you find in the love of God is it's still higher yet. And here in verse 10 is one of those things. We started climbing in verse 7. We ascended higher in verse 8. In verse 9, we can see the summit and the love of God being manifested. And now in verse 10, we're reaching, we're striving for the summit peak. And we stand near the summit of the love of God. And, and what we see is startling. It's startling. This love of God which we learned last week originated with God is defined by God is consistent with all his other attributes. It's been shed abroad in our hearts. It has been manifested on the cross by God's only begotten Son. 
Here's the startling truth. This agape love of God is not in response to anything in us or anything we have done. I want you to think about that for a moment. God's agape love, God's preferential love, God's choice of love is not in response to anything in us or anything that we have done. Now we see this preferential agape love of God in this verse as John states very clearly, listen, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And I think it's good to stop right there. I think it's good to contemplate those words. And as we stand near the summit of the love of God and we study God's love, stop for a moment and enjoy the view. My goodness, God could never love me if it was contingent upon what I did. Because I'll tell you what, I so outsinned anything remotely close. That if he were going to weigh in the scales, which is what all the religions say, right? God is going to weigh in the scales. He's going to see how many good works versus how many bad works, and that's going to determine your eternal destiny. But biblical historic Christianity has always taught that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That God did not respond to anything in us. Then we read the verse in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, what does it say? He saved us, not according to deeds which we have done in righteousness. Enjoy the view. God's love is such that it should cause our mouths to drop. God's love is such that it can never just be a cliche that rolls off our tongue. Oh, God loves me. God loves me. God's love is such that it should leave us speechless. Not that we love God. But God loved us. How did God love believers? Not that we love God but that He loved us. Just think about it. All of our supposed goodness, morality, ethics, kindness, obedience, religious works, our political views, our knowledge of Scripture, our consistency in religious practice, everything good that we can think of did not influence God's love toward the believer. Did not. How can that be? Doesn't God know that I'm a good person? You mean all of my goodness had nothing to do with God loving me and choosing me? That is exactly what John means. That is exactly what I mean. His words are clear. They are are direct. They are not ambivalent. Not that we love God. We did not have this great affection for God that was sealed by our decision to follow Christ. Instead, the Scripture tells us that we were striving against God, that we were at enmity against God. We were warring against God. We refused to obey. 
We were enemies of God and we needed to be reconciled. How did God love believers? John states that He, God, loved us. And that is a, that verb of the word agape, it's just awesome. It really brings it out. It means to prefer to love and, and, and preeminently refers to what God prefers as he is love. So if we use that, that verb in that tense, if we used it in the context of a believer, it defines embracing God's will, a love for God that willingly chooses God's choices. But when used of God, it refers to God's divine choice in love. God's divine choice. That God prefers, listen to this, that God prefers to love. God takes pleasure in loving. And God longs to love his beloved, the elect, the saved of God. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 can say, he loved us with a great love. If you were in Christ, that should be music to your ears, man. We should be running around, jumping around and dancing at the very thought of it inside of us. God preferred, God chose, and he preferred, and he chose to love me in my sin. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. That's the agape love that Paul talks about right then and there. He preferred to love us. Listen, if you are a believer in Christ, if you've been born again, if you have repented of your sins and trusting only in Christ, if you are sealed with the Holy Spirit as evidence of that salvation, you can know with absolute confidence that God has chosen, God has preferred to love you with an everlasting love. And that love was demonstrated outwardly on the cross of Calvary through our Lord and he demonstrated it publicly for the whole world to see. Do we have examples of this in Scripture? Yes, we do. Turn with me to, Isaiah, uh, to Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. This is the Lord prophesying through the prophet Jeremiah, speaking to a rebellious Judah. A rebellious Judah. Listen what the prophet says. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I have drawn you in loving kindness. This is to rebellious people. Look at Psalm 103, verse 17. Psalm 103, verse 17. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to a children's children. Look also at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15 and 16. Again, to a rebellious people. Listen to the words of God that were prophesied. 
Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Notice the Listen to the love of God. But I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He would write this to rebellious people. How then must God love the saved? How then must God love the elect? Let me tell you something. Probably one of the greatest temptations you, you struggle with are probably very similar to mine. And I'm willing to bet that one of the great temptations you struggle with is, boy, with all the stuff I've done in my life and the person I used to be, how in the world could God love me? I did this, I did that, I did the other thing. How could God love me? Well, you may want to read these three verses again when you're home. If you are in Christ, if you have been born again, if you are saved, if the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart, then we see that God has loved us with an everlasting love of God. How did God love believers? That's the question we posed. With a preferential love toward them that pleased God to do so. <clears throat> With a divine choice that God initiated in love. With a pleasurable love to ransom and save believers. With a sacrificial love that gave His only begotten Son to make atonement for sin and satisfy the justice of God. That's what that word, by the way, at the end of verse 10, when it talks about He has sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. We've talked about this a lot. It means you satisfy the justice of God. Lastly, let's look at the last question. How should believers respond to this love. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John is very, very clear by stating the response that believers are to have in response to this great love of God, and he uses the word ought. Ought. Which means you're obliged to do so. You're indebted is the concept. So John says, if we have been impacted by this love of God, then we are obliged. We are obliged to love as God loved. We are obliged to love one another in the body and in the church. Remember that John is writing this epistle to the churches in Asia, as we've said time and time again, in, uh, uh, because of the rise of heresy, and specifically the heresy of Gnosticism that was emerging. And his point is that having 
been shown the amazing love of God, the preferential love of God, the deliberate love of God. John informs believers that we are to love as God has demonstrated to us. I love my sister Charlotte. Sometimes when I'm talking to my sister Charlotte, she'll start to cry. It's okay if I pick on you, Charlotte? It's okay. She begins to cry and she says, Pastor, there are so many times when the love of God fills my heart and then she'll start to cry and she'll say that I just have to love somebody. I have to do something for someone. Man, we need more experiences like that. Where the love of God compels us. The love of God moves us forward. Why do we preach? Because the love of God compels us so that others won't have to go to hell, so that others would respond to the gospel. Why do we give out tracts? Because the love of God compels us that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, even though we know all will not come to repentance. Why do we call a brother a sister? Why do we send a text message? Why do we come with a meal? Why do we go here? Why do we go there? Why do we meet together as a church? Because the love of God. And if the love of God is not primary, then we should dismiss everything else that we're doing. Because God does not need more religion. And God does not need more formality. And God does not need works of righteousness that are not in keeping with the love of Christ. This is not a trivial point. This is a major point. God came and he saved and he has shed abroad in the heart of the believers the love of Christ. And brother and sister, we need to love each other with that love of Christ. We need to, as Paul told the Galatians, esteem each other better than ourselves. We need to take the blinders off and say, well, that guy never does anything for me. She never does anything. Oh, I call her a million times. She never gives me a phone call back. Oh, I brought a meal over to that person's house. They never did anything. No, 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 no. We do it without reciprocation. Did we reciprocate to Christ for the forgiveness of sins that he's blessed us with? Please don't answer yes. We need to love each other as Christ loved us. Having been shown the amazing love of God, believers are to love as as God demonstrated. We are to love in an amazing, a deliberate, listen to those words, an amazing and a deliberate. We need to be purposeful. You've heard me say this many times. Everything God does is purposeful. God doesn't default himself to happenstance. Everything in the believer's life is deliberate. Everything is purposeful. Everything is providential. We need to love in that manner. We need to love purposeful because we submit ourselves underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we need to love with a preferential love. We choose to love. We are to love the brothers and sisters in the church in that manner. We are most like God when we love like God. In 1 John 4, 16, just go a little bit further down in chapter 4. John writes, And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And notice what he says. 
And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So as always, I I end with this. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? A.W. Tozer has a great quote. He said, the love of God is one of the great realities of the universe, a pillar upon which the hope of the world rests. It is personal, an intimate thing. God does not love populations. He loves people. He loves not masses, but men. He loves us all with a mighty love that has no beginning and can have no end. As we're going to gather around the Lord's table in just a few minutes, and we remember Christ's love for us. We remember that when the Lord did this, a few hours later, the Lord would be beaten, bruised, and battered, hanging on a cross for the entire world to see, demonstrating that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, And as we come before the table of the Lord, we commemorate that love. And we say at the Lord's table, we are one with you, Lord. We are indeed followers of Christ. And so consequently, if we are followers of Christ, we must love as Christ loved. We must love as God has demonstrated to us. We choose to love. We're purposeful in our love. We adore in our love. We don't expect to be reciprocated in our love. We serve one another. We attend to one another. And we respond as each one has a need with that love of God. There's many things that could be said about our church. What we have, what we don't have in some people's minds may define our church. But there's only thing I want this church to be known for. I want this church to be known for a pure gospel. And I want this church to be known for the love of God that exists between the brethren. Join with me in a word.